So these Advent candles represent an approach to Christmas that is meaningful to us. And we're looking at these four words as symbolizing our Christmas experience. And the first word is hope. Uh, peace, joy, and love will follow. But hope is a wonderful word. And we have to, first of all, clean it up and get rid of the anemic way we use it in everyday language. Uh, are, you, are you doing okay today? I hope so. Uh, do you think you'll be able to make your rent check this month? I hope so. Uh, can you make your marriage work? I hope so. It's almost like hope is an expression of question, of doubt, rather than the, the powerful word it is as developed in the Bible. So I went to a concordance, which old-time theologians have, you know. You had to have that for seminary. A Bible concordance, it's a big, thick book, and it contains every word in the Bible, words like Jesus, Israel, words like the. And how many times is that word used in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And you can look in concordance for any word in the Bible and go on a journey. Well, I looked up the word hope. And I found it's a very popular word in the Old Testament, translated English uh, as hope, but there are more than one Hebrew words behind that. But there are 65 times in our English Bible when the word hope is used in the Old Testament, some very profound ways. Then I looked in the New Testament, and I found there it was pretty much the same Greek word, and uh, it was used 57 times, all in the epistles after the book of Acts. In the Gospels, I only found the word used twice, and they're both in the Gospel of Luke, and they're about someone hoping to... to reach this destination, or an innocuous use of the word hope. But I wanted to find a word that pinned hope on Christmas. And I looked back in the Christmas story to remind myself, wait, the word hope is not here. And in the Gospels, in the, particularly in the birth narratives about Jesus, you don't find the word hope. I shared that with Pastor Connie, and I hate to say that. She's smarter than I am. <laughs> but I said, why is hope used so much in the Old Testament? And then it's used in the later books of the New Testament, but it's not used in the Gospels and particularly in the birth narratives. And she said, because the hope was here. Like, oh, wait a minute. That unlocks some things. In the Old Testament, there's the hope, the hope, the hope. And then Afterwards, when Jesus left, there's another hope, hope, hope for his second coming. But in between, while he's here, the hope is here. And that's what happened that day when Jesus came. 
But we have tied hope to Christmas in our secular experience in a number of ways. Uh, one of the things is by anticipating gifts, like all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, or what's on your Christmas lift or list, or uh, in the familiar song, uh, the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. How many shopping days? They don't do this so much anymore because we can shop with a phone call and it comes the next day. But don't count on it this season. But remember, 30 shopping days left to Christmas? And it was serious business to use those days to the max. And uh, that has built into our Christmas idea of hope. But also, Advent, taking four weeks as it does in the church calendar, uh, is a way of lengthening the Christmas experience. It's kind of like we're, we're slow walking Christmas because it's so important. We want to make sure we get it right. And Advent started early in the Christian church Unfortunately, Protestants, by throwing away a lot of old traditions and Baptists, by throwing away a lot more, don't celebrate Advent the way they probably should because it's a way of reminding ourselves of how important this moment is to Christian history, to the history of faith and hope. Our scripture today is in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is one of the later New Testament books, and it was given an innocuous title, Hebrews, because it talks a lot about the Old Testament experience of the Hebrews. But we're not sure who the author was. Everybody in the ancient church knew it was a really important book, connecting the Old to the New Testament. But you'll get lost pretty quickly as I read this to you. Uh, anybody want the kids' quiz now? Okay. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Humans, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute among them. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged. Raise your hand if you understand all that. Okay. takes us back to the time of Abraham. It takes us back to the initial calling of a people for God's name. And in that experience, Abraham received a word from the Lord. And then, this is really kind of old-fashioned Jewish rabbinic thinking. In the mouth of two witnesses is the truth, right? So the one witness is God's word, the other witness is God's oath. 
because he swore by himself, he says. And this is a, a way we don't think today. But that's the way the argument goes. Through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God should prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged. And the Old Testament message of hope is consistent as we read in here that God's purpose has never changed. That purpose is continuous, but it, it seems to express itself in different forms. In the Old Testament, we see, first of all, that the Israelites are called from Egypt to go to the promised land. So there is a hope for a, a geographical solution. If we only get into our land, then things will be good. You got that flavor in the book of Exodus. And, and it's part of the Israel journey, even in Judaism today, in the, the sense of the land being a place that's important to the fulfillment of hope. But when they got into the promised land, things didn't go that well. They didn't find all that they had anticipated in the promised land. And the hope moved from a geographical solution to a political solution. And so they longed for a king. Everybody else had a king. We need a king. And God responded and gave them King David. Now, God's purpose had never changed, but he was responding to their, their, their faulty anticipation of what it would be like to have fulfillment in God's, in a relationship with God. And from that political solution for a king, well, King David was great, King Solomon was great, and that's the end of the greatness. It's really sad to read that in the Old Testament books. And then the prophets arose and started sharing another kind of anticipation. And in time, the temple became the focus. So there was a geographical solution, a political solution, and then a religious solution. If we fulfill all the sacrifices, if we obey all of those instructions and have the priests and the Levites represent us, then we'll find fulfillment. And the hope moved in that direction. And then after the temple was destroyed by the Assyrians and Babylonians in that period before Jesus' coming, uh, the Mosaic law and the uh, uh, rabbinic tradition took control. And then it was an intellectual solution. That's what we're hoping for. If we follow the lead of the rabbis, we'll get it right. If we are true to the Torah, we'll be at peace with God. But there was still this gnawing, gnawing. No, that's not the true hope. And so you find emerging in the Old Testament, and particular, particularly in the prophets, an anticipation of a coming Messiah, an anointed one who was not of the priestly line. And this passage, if you get into studying it, talks about the priest of priesthood of Melchizedek in contrast to the priesthood of Aaron. And all of that is very mysterious to us, but it's the author of Hebrews' way of showing that the ritual of the temple would not satisfy and neither would the law satisfy, but Messiah would be anointed. And what I chose to do, to describe this is 
that it's a next level solution. This solution goes beyond the logic of the land and the political solution and a religious solution and an intellectual solution. It goes to something mysterious that they tried to describe but could not quite get, get their, their, their arms around until, until the Messiah came. And when the Messiah came, then some who were open to how God was leading them with his purpose right on through all the levels of hope in the Old Testament, could see that this baby born in Bethlehem, who was going to live a short life and teach and flame out and be killed, that he was the hope. The fact that he was killed didn't eliminate that hope because this hope was on another level. He was talking about the kingdom that he was bringing in. And this kingdom was the epitome of hope. And then, to put God's stamp of approval on all of that, he rose from the dead. And that's the climactic truth. But now, his disciples were left without him, but with a new hope. Not the Old Testament hope for the coming Messiah, but the hope for the, not the next level Messiah, but the third level when Messiah would bring about all the fulfillment of the kingdom promises. So this is the hope we see later in the New Testament. And this is the hope that the author of Hebrews is talking about. And I'd like to start with verse 18 and read a couple of more verses in Hebrews chapter 6. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false. We who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged. Here's an important phrase. To seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, verse 19, and here's the second important phrase. A sure, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're not going to go into all that background, but I want to focus on these two phrases and the word anchor, which he introduces. This hope that we have is an anchor of the soul in the middle of verse 19, an anchor of the soul. Your soul is being kicked around, tossed with every storm. But there is an anchor for the soul. And hope is that anchor. Now I want you to see a picture. You need to be established firmly in that anchor. And that takes a two, that's two-step two assurance. First, in the last phrase, he says, this anchor is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So here is an anchor. And we're asked to make sure our anchor is fastened at the bottom. This one is at the bottom. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And that anchor is, it's really kind of an interesting thing. Anchors 
Anchors hold a ship in place, first of all, because of their weight. Anchors are made out of heavy metals which sink to the bottom, and in normal circumstances, they keep a ship from drifting very far. But there's also the drag, and anchors are designed so that they hook into the sandy soil. You can see that anchor. And the drag also holds them in place a little more than the weight does. And finally, if they are able to grab hold of a rock, if they manage to find a rock to hold on to, that's a really secure anchor. So what is, how do we make sure our anchor is fastened at the bottom, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? Well, we, we have to make sure that we're not casually believing in Christ. There are a lot of us who trust the weight of the anchor. We, we grew up as Christian, in a Christian family. And if somebody asks us what our faith is, we'd say Christian, but it doesn't mean much more than that to us. There's a certain weight to that, which keeps us from drifting too far. It gives us certain values and that we know about and are conscious of, but it's not the best anchor for the soul. This, the drag where the anchor digs into the sand, that's when we're more than casual Christians, where we're part of a believing congregation and we attend church and we are conscious of Bible reading. We even hear sermons and learn from them. But the hook we really grab the rock that's when we have a profound Christian experience of our own when the gospel message grabs us and Advent is a time when that can happen because that little baby in the manger is a rock a rock that we can hold on to that's the anchor being uh, being fast, fastened to the bottom now the rope itself that's guaranteed by God. He created hope. So you don't have to worry about the rope breaking. But at the top, it's got to be fastened as well. Make sure the anchor is fastened at the top. And in that phrase, seize the hope that is set us before us. Let us seize the hope. If we don't seize the hope, we're not going to have the full anchoring experience. And the anchor fastened at the top, it can be fastened by, sometimes there's a winch with a really secure, it, it, sometimes it's this kind of a tie. But sometimes in smaller crafts, when you throw the anchor out, the first thing is you're holding on to it. So your own grip at the top may be critical to seizing the anchor. But here for sure, we are asked to take personal initiative, commitment, daily recommitment, because there are all kinds of things that make us drift. We get into a comfortable pattern of life. We have ups and downs, but modest successes and victories keep us encouraged. And then when storms come and hit, the rope slips out of our hands. We didn't have a grip. Seize. The, the, the top of that anchor and make sure the bottom of that anchor 
is in the most secure, rocky place. That's a wonderful image to me. I hope it never leaves you. When you think of hope as an anemic thing, think of how a relatively small anchor can keep even a giant ship secure and steadfast in a great storm and be that ship. First Peter, in another one of the later books, First Peter 1, verse 3, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A living hope. Do you need a new birth into a living hope today? Grab that rope. Make sure it's secure. Give it a few yanks. Not when you're down and out, but right now. Have a new birth in your living hope and make sure your hope anchor is securely fastened and securely held. That's my challenge for the first Sunday of Advent. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for something real to hope for, something solid, something eternal, something on the ultimate level of hope, beyond a land and a king and a, a law to the Messiah, and the Messiah who is also the king of eternity and who calls us to be part of his kingdom. Help us individually, Lord, if we're struggling. Give us a shot of, of hope-seizing, reassuring experience that changes us, our family, our work, and the world around us. So this can be the best Christmas ever. In Jesus' name, amen.